Welcome to this episode of Temple Beth Am's Are You Coming Back? Personal, candid conversations with Jewish thought leaders across the country on the future of Jewish practice. Hosted by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. By the time I return to my alma mater, the Jewish Theological Seminary of America, not only will there be a newly rebuilt campus, there will be a new chancellor since I last left. It was an honor and a pleasure to sit down with Dr. Shuli Rubin Schwartz, Chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary, to speak with her about her personal experiences during COVID and her professional perspective on the approach to life as a Jew, as Jewish professional, and as a human during this unprecedented and historic era. Stay tuned for this episode of Are You Coming Back? I've started this conversation with everyone asking asking them, and I'll ask you now, to kind of look back a year and a half ago, at least, to February 2020 or November 2019, and think back to Jewish life then, to Shabbat then, to maybe weekday shacharit then, to the rhythms of ritual before we knew what life during COVID was going to be like, and take us back there. What was life like for you then? And also, if you'd like to, since we never take our professional hats off, really, um, what life was like through the lens of seminary. Yeah, so I mean, I think I'll I'll answer with the end of your question and start really with the lens of JTS, because that is what I remember most. That's what felt most profound to me. I was... um, I was the provost of JTS at the time, and and I was on the search committee for the new chancellor. And, you know, I, I guess my first hint of this virus was um, when I was coming back from a meeting of the search committee, and I had spoken to my daughter, who was a ER doctor, and she said, Ima, don't take the subway. And I said, oh, come on, you're overreacting, mm. it's nothing. And she said, humor me, <laughs> just don't take the subway. Mm. And within about two, three weeks, I had to tell the faculty that over the course of the weekend, we were going to be transitioning to all virtual learning. And we were going to put in the supports that were necessary to make that happen for them. And this is a faculty, as you know, that treasures their relationships with their students. And uh, some of our faculty taught online, but most had not. And most were not interested in, in teaching online. And... Um, so in that sense, I would say, you know, I, I also remember going home, knowing that we were shutting down, thinking that it would be for a few weeks. And right before we left, that and one of the IT colleagues handed me an Ethernet cable and said, 
just take that just in case because your class, because I was teaching as well, he said, your class is pretty large and you'll probably, you just might want to have it. You'll get a better connection. So I did not go back to GTS for many, many months after that. And, you know, it was it was actually a very moving experience because the faculty to the very last faculty member just to really to a person simply said, okay, if our contract with our students is to teach them and if we can't do it face to face, we're going to do it virtually. And thank you. We're going to take advantage of all of those supports to make sure we can do that as well as possible. And it was an advantage that I was teaching that semester because I, too, who was pretty uh, green when it came to online, uh, any, any proficiency with technology, I had to figure out how to do it, too. Uh, and it was, it was, um, you know, then everything else that came after that, what we, we had to send the students home. We had to thought, figure out, are we going to continue with daily tefillah? How are we going to mark events? How are we going to sustain our community? And all of that happened one after another, after another. And we, um, you know, the senior team began meeting twice a week to really stay on top of all of the changes that needed to uh, to be effected. Personally, um, thank God my husband and I are blessed with many grandchildren and in five different families. And uh, so as we looked forward to uh, the pandemic, it, there was a dramatic shift. I mean, normally we would have spent Pesach with one of our kids and grandkids. And um, it was very sad uh, to be alone, you know, um, in our apartment. Uh, and uh, all of those ways in which we had to uh, adjust, working from home, Shabbat, uh, holidays. I think the first event was my birthday. My birthday is in March. <laughs> and we decided to, this was a novel thing. We were going to celebrate on Zoom. And the grandchildren used something called Kahoot, which is kind of, obviously, you know, this multiple choice uh, game. And the grandkids made one about me. <laughs> and each family was a different team. And uh, it was adorable. Little did we know that would become standard way for us to mark um, moments, special moments in, in our lives as a family. I want to come back to that in a little bit because one of the things that I've talked a lot with people about during this time is the invention of ritual. And I think that that is exactly what you're describing in your family. Um, and I... Uh, have talked about um, this idea that comes out of the design school in Stanford, um, which is that ritual invention actually has a craft to it and can be studied. And one of the things is that usually it does begin a bit unintentionally, but then there's an evolution to it and it has these different elements to it. And the description that you're offering is it's kind of perfect, even if it doesn't involve mikvah or wine, it can still, um, it can still um, be ritual. But putting a putting a pin in that for just a second, 
you're also describing a lot of loss. And it has to do with the gaps in the expectations that we have about relationship and distance. Some of it with your faculty at first. I can hear that you have an enormous amount of empathy, but also I'm sure you felt it personally with your students. What do you think some of the biggest losses that people experienced, you especially maybe as as a teacher and someone who understands higher education so deeply, what are some of those relational losses that happened from the beginning of, of COVID? Yeah, I think I think some of those relational losses were tempered because it was right in the middle of the semester. So I think we all felt lucky, the faculty and the students, that we knew each other. We had already built trust and relationships, expectations. Um, I was teaching, of course, uh, with my colleague, Mary Boys, at Union Theological Seminary on Jewish-Christian relations. And the students in the class are students both from Union Theological Seminary and Jewish Theological Seminary. And that is part of the design of the course. It's a course that involves very difficult conversations around very um, deeply disturbing texts, many anti-Semitic texts that come from the Christian tradition. And it is very hard to study those texts in the presence of the other. Hard enough to study them ourselves, but Christians to study with Jews, Jews to study with Christians. And so we had just reached the middle of the semester where that trust had just begun to develop. And so we were, the loss was tremendous because we knew enough, the students now knew enough to realize that they could not really recapture that, but we all felt grateful that we already had those relationships. So when we went into breakout groups, they were, they they could work. It worked. Um, it was harder in the fall when classes were completely virtual, and we had to then figure out how do you create that community, that learning community, that nurturing community, that trusting community? How do you do that? But thankfully, by then we had learned so much about how to do that, that we had many, um, many techniques for doing that. Can you think of one or another thing that you tried that you're so glad you tried? at the beginning of this past fall, something that stands out to you or a relationship that has blossomed since the beginning of the fall that you think is, I don't know, a standout something that that's worth even keeping past COVID as a, a relationship builder? Hmm. Uh, I don't, um, I don't know how to answer the end of your question of something that I'll keep past COVID because remember I became chancellor during COVID. (laughs) I only know um, about being chancellor during COVID. <laughs> so I, I can say the, you know, I could not have gotten through COVID without the senior leadership team at JTS. When I was provost, I was grateful that we met twice a week. We needed that anchor for ourselves and for the JTS community and on behalf of the JTS community. But by the fall, I also felt that it had become a little bit of a crutch 
So we went down to once a week, um, which was correct because we all had a lot of work to do and we needed to actually do it. But that that ritual of um, weekly meetings with the senior team um, is precious and essential. At the same time, I hired a new vice chancellor for administration and finance. And this is a person that I interviewed online, you know, via Zoom. Uh, and so she began, uh, and we had never met face-to-face. So I, in October, right after the Chagim, began, I guess then it was a ritual because it was so then unusual. I started coming into JTS once a week in large measure so that she and I could meet face-to-face and develop a solid working relationship. And I'm so glad that I did that. Hmm. Yeah, the trust that was required of us during this time of other people felt like something new to me for sure. That was definitely not an environment in which we were used to having people working from home. A seminary is not a working from home environment, neither is a synagogue most of the time. And uh, that's new. Hiring somebody from a distance is certainly new. I also love that short anecdote about going from meeting twice a week down to once a week because um, not that long ago I was meeting with Rabbi Jacob Blumenthal, who heads up both the United Synagogue and the Rabbinical Assembly there in New York. So you actually see him more than I do by far, <laughs> but we've had the occasion to collaborate on a lot of things lately. And he was out here in Los Angeles. We actually got to sit down to dinner. Uh, to burgers. I got to have an impossible burger. It's this great place. My congregants on my podcast will appreciate that we went to Cy Burger out here. It's a great kosher restaurant. And as we were sitting down and talking about the challenges in the future, he elucidated something I hadn't really thought about, which was how much fuller my schedule is now per Zoom, a full Zoom schedule than it was before. When I look back to my calendar in you know, June 2018, and I look at my calendar in June 2021, and a day of meetings, I have so many more buffers built in and so many fewer, so fewer, I don't know the grammar, but uh, meetings on the schedule. And it's as though I've tricked myself into thinking I have more minutes and more attention span and can process, but I don't have the time built in to then follow up on all of these other things. And I understand that the value tension there is that we're afraid that if we don't meet twice a week with the people who we would normally pass in the hallways, that we would lose the relationships with them. That makes a lot of sense to me that at the beginning, we wanted to meet with all those people so often, but we also so easily just filled our schedules with these meetings online. Um, I'm trying to figure out, I'm really lost as to how to change back to that lifestyle from before. I'm really treading water with that. Well, you know, here's actually a very important anecdote um, that was very instructive for me. And I, uh, Beth will remember, I actually ended up sharing it at a faculty, at at a staff meeting because it was, you know, with a kind of message of self care. As you know, since you've probably officiated at them, funerals 
became virtual events. Yeah. And um, a cousin of mine died during COVID. And I was I freed my schedule so that I could attend the funeral, which I did and which was very moving. And then the rest of the day, I couldn't focus. I had meetings the whole rest of the day. I was off my game. And it was only at, at the end of the day that I realized I would have been in the car with family members traveling home from the funeral. I wouldn't have taken the rest of the day, but I would have had a few hours of buffer with people who were grieving before I then had to resume work. But when a funeral is just a time block on your schedule, there's no opportunity for the emotional resonance of that hour that is is not a meeting <laughs> and uh, only only by experiencing it did I realize that mm-hmm. and that was part of what I felt I should share with the JTS community to say yes thank you everyone's productive and JTS is doing fine and we're we're getting everything done but don't forget about yourselves, about the emotional piece that you can't schedule. <laughs> I, I that is the most that is the most profound version I've ever heard of commute time is sacred. The, the closest I've I've heard to that is uh, Yehuda Kurtzer said that at some point very early on in the pandemic, when Shul was closed for him, he's in Riverdale. He just walked to shul and walked back because he needed the walk to shul. And he didn't know why. He just knew that his neshama needed a walk to shul and back. Uh, that's about as close as I, I've heard to that. But even more so, that that funeral buffer, which, you know, in Manhattan, I remember the course, I think it was with Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, when he said, um, I don't know what's going to happen where you are, but out here, it's not just the funeral, it's your day, because then you got to go to Long Island, you got to go to Jersey, you got to go to Connecticut, because there's the burial. So it really could be a buffer of hours and hours to just sit and process and grieve. And that's right. Yeah, yeah. And you can just be with others, because yes. chances are at that next meeting, you're not going to say, oh, by the way, I just came from a funeral, because it didn't you literally didn't cut. You just got off one Zoom and got on another. So you probably wouldn't even share, which you would if you were like hanging around waiting for a meeting to begin and you were, you know, your colleague was waiting for it also. And you say, you know, I had this funeral this morning and whatever. Well, that, that is so important that you say it in that way because what it says to me is that there's some piece to you as the attendee of that funeral who didn't even internalize that your attendance at that funeral was real. Because if you can't say to the next people in the meeting, I was just at a funeral, it means that somewhere in you, you're embodying the perspective, you're you're wearing that perspective that you weren't even really there. And then there isn't completion to that attendance and that, I'm sure that's true for so many people that they didn't really internalize that they were really there. Yeah, which is why the next morning at the next time I met with this group or whenever it was, I apologized and said I was not, I was off and this is why. And now I understand it. And maybe 
you can learn from me so that we all, you don't have to experience what I experienced. Rabbi Adam Klickfeld, who's my BIMA partner here, says that a funeral should always be the last thing on your schedule on the day when you're a rabbi. And there are so many 11 a.m. funerals here, and it's so rare for it to be the last thing on our schedule. So what we try to do, each of us, is have a routine. Mostly it's frozen yogurt, and it's no joke, that routine. I mean, we really try to make a buffer and do something that's for self-care to remind ourselves that we're alive, not just washing our hands with water, but some other kind of ritual to reawaken ourselves to the world afterwards. But it is, it is really, really hard when you're just you know, going from one room to the next, Um, even if you're just moving from the living room back to your home office. I was just at a funeral is a really hard sentence to get yourself to say. I'm so glad you were able to say that to your team. So let's go back to those rituals that you began to create and some of the things that were born for good out of out of this pandemic, you started to talk about that birthday party that came and that Passover that was unexpectedly empty in your home. I imagine that there were some things that were born both for you Jewishly in your world and also at JTS. I have no idea what Purim looked like for JTS this year. I know what it looked like every year when I was there all six years going through both programs. And I wonder what was... What was born this year for you and, and for that community? Well, I, I have to. <laughs> the most joyous thing that was born is my newest grandson. <laughs> and so that was just the most moving experience. Um, my younger daughter, Hadar's third child, he was born a little early. And we were all very grateful at the healthy birth. And um, it was the first time that I was a Sundic at a breast. Uh, and I, I now understand why it is so moving and such an honor for men through the millennia. Um, uh, and it, it was overwhelming and it was, it was, beautiful there were 10 adults and and this baby and his two older siblings in the sanctuary uh at at the uh conservative synagogue of riverdale where my kids are members with rabbi cats and uh everyone else was on zoom and i gotta tell you as the moel and 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 JJ, <laughs> Yona Yehuda, who was, you know, born around Yom Kippur, <laughs> was in uh, on my lap. I was holding him. And uh, yes, of course, you could hear a pin drop in the sanctuary with the 10 of us, but you could hear a pin drop on the Zoom as well. And the sacredness of that moment was palpable to everyone. And that is something that none of us will ever, will ever forget. And this was in September. It was still quite scary. We knew, we, we still did not know very much about whether surfaces and the mask and the double mask, like 
we were so careful and who just the miracle of a healthy baby during this pandemic and a successful pregnancy. It, it just, it was uh, such gratitude and such joy and to have such joy come at this dark time. He just turned nine months <laughs> and he is the happiest baby. And uh, thank God for that. Oh, that is such a gift. I, I'm sure nothing can beat that. And he was literally born. Um, do you think that just like your chancellorship doesn't know anything pre-COVID? There is no such thing as um, this piece of your leadership pre-COVID. That there's no piece of this grandson life pre-COVID. Um, do you think that there's like a generation that is completely, at, at least Jewishly, we can talk about that frame. It's probably a little too global to go beyond this, but at least Jewishly doesn't know the world pre-COVID. Do you think there are things that will never quite be the same, at least Jewishly? I think about this a lot because um, JJ is my youngest grandchild, but we are blessed with 15 grandchildren and the oldest is 15. <laughs> so I think that, you know, it, it varies dramatically, the impact of the pandemic in general, and then, you know, how each, each family navigated um, Jewish life during the pandemic and it's been so moving fascinating fascinating like like jj's sister is three so she was not quite two when the pandemic began this is most of her life will she remember any of it who knows who knows but the five and a half year old he'll probably remember and i, I guess they'll remember it because of there'll be photos of them with masks, right? And, and photos aid memory. Like, they'll think they remember. Um, but, uh, you know, each of us has had to develop new, new ways of being, new Shabbat rituals, uh, new uh, work rituals, school rituals, all, everything. And, and what's fascinating now is as we slowly reenter you know, what are the things that we want to do first? What what are the, the old rituals that we can't wait, that, that are the most important things for us to do? Yeah, that realm of nostalgia that I think this High Holy Days in particular will be flagship yes. for, you know, hold. Uh, one of the things that I'm imagining might stick around from this era is a sense of radical equity, radical accessibility that entered during this time. I remember having a conversation with Rabbi Lauren Tuckman, who I know fought hard during her time at JTS for accessibility as a blind rabbinical student, now a rabbi, to materials that weren't always available to her right away, often took a long time to get those materials. And then so much was digitized so quickly because of the broad need for it. And we realized that there's this 
means to to do things uh, ra- with radical equity. And I wonder in what ways the seminary, perhaps with the example of students being able to be present to the seminary from many different places or walks of life or thinking of applying who'd never thought to, that sort of a thing. Are you seeing radical equity touch seminary life or Jewish leadership life in new ways? You know, I think that the issue of equity comes up in many different ways. For one thing, even meetings are more equitable when everyone is a square on a screen. There's no leader at the head of the table. Uh, there's no differentiation between the people that are can physically be there and those that are calling in to the meeting. So that alone has changed the dynamic of much of what we do uh, for the better, I think. Uh, more voices can be heard. Um, there's the, some of the hierarchy that takes place in person um, wasn't happening on Zoom. So we'll just start with that. Um, the other piece is, look, we certainly learned that, uh, particularly with our public teaching, people all over the world were drawn to our public education and uh, wonderful, amazing to see that there are people everywhere that appreciate the particular kind of Torah that GTS teaches, right? The particular kind of um, critical inquiry coupled with religious meaning that we offer. And uh, yes, we it, it'll be our privilege to just make that more and more accessible to um, different populations. We were able to bring alumni from all over the world together uh, to share experiences about COVID, um, each of those things that we just had. If you haven't checked it out, look, check it out on our website. Um, you'll probably recall that we have an artist in residence program and we did an exhibition every year and this year, you know, they just mounted an online exhibition and it is so powerful, so gorgeous and so moving because all of the participants who, again, are staff and faculty and students and alumni and families, all were just simply asked to produce something that speaks to this moment. Mm-hmm ever on their woods, ever in them, that that was, you know, the, the, the simplest of prompts and the most gorgeous art in different media. I love that. I, I hadn't thought in a long time about the artist in residence pieces. And I know you've had everyone from uh, Rabbi Bronwyn, um, Mullen, uh, Mullen, is that her last name? may have to correct myself later if I can't remember her full last name, but she's a contemporary of mine. And then, of course, there's the whole exhibition from Rabbi Matt Berkowitz. But now I'm thinking he's in Israel. And of, of course, you can have that. You can have him and his art and, and host him. And now you've got me thinking I can bring him back because I know he was here years ago to do scroll illumination with Beth Am. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe I'll bring him back virtually as artist in residence. So but you've got I, me I thinking. Just say this, this is Toby Khan. This is ah, yes. child and um, really was magnificent. 
Toby is amazing. Uh, that's fantastic. And what you're saying is just part and parcel of something that I'm in this huge conversation with Rabbi Jacob Blumenthal, Rabbi Alana Garber, Cantor Luis Catan, and others about as we prepare to bring back Colt Vila for the fourth year in Shabbaton. And I'm about to announce that we've gotten seven amazing artists, including Rabbi Josh Roshofsky. It'll be public by the time this podcast comes out, but Rabbi Josh Roshofsky, um, rabbinical student Deborah Saxman, who's at JTS, uh, Chava Murel, Rabbi Yosef jo- uh, Goldman, um, Rabbi Ariel Wolpe, and uh, Alana Arian, and Rabbi Micah Shapiro for this seven-person blowout concert coming back together in person as part of the Shabbaton out here in Los Angeles. And the reason and catalyst for all of those people coming out and doing Kultifila again with USCJ is that the CA... And the RA, in addition to the USCJ, discovered exactly what you're describing JTS discovering, which is that the RA and the CA have always had the missions. This is not me talking. It's the organization. It's always been the mission of each of those organizations to serve their membership. And that made sense. But during this time, they discovered that their programming was of tremendous interest to Amcha, to the kilo, to the people in their seats and stuck at home who wanted to imbibe their incredibly rich programming. And now the CA has a listserv of over 12,000 people tuning into their programming, including reframing Carla Bach. And, you know, Rabbi Lana Garber is curating these Niguna nourishment sessions and, and JTS, as you're describing it, has these programs as well. And this is the point at which we want to try to pivot back to in-person experiences while still capitalizing on hybrid. But it's incredible to hear you speak to JTS discovering exactly the same thing that you want to be able to open up exactly what JTS does so well to the public, to your public. That's yes. Amazing. And, and as, as you described, we also can't wait to get back to campus. <laughs> we are not becoming a virtual institution. Um, we cannot wait. Our faculty can't wait to get back in the classroom. And our students can't wait to get back on campus. And um, there are different ways to reach different constituencies. And there's still no substitute for in-person, face-to-face interactions and community. And we cherish that. The Jewish people has always cherished that. And so we are really eager for that. It is so striking to me that COVID has served as this truly unintentional buffer between the JTS, the historical JTS, and this reopening of JTS as a brand new, stunning, reconstructed, incredibly thoughtful reopening campus in spring of 2022 formally, right? And I would love to hear what what it's like for you to think not just about returning to campus, but returning to this rebuilt Hanukkah Bayit, this rededicated uh, campus. Yeah, there is such joy in just um, the, the just imagining everyone coming back to see it. You know, I, I hope you'll find it a way to participate in some of that programming. Um, we're so excited. You know, not only is it gorgeous, and it truly is, but it also, um, it, the architecture 
reflects the vision of JTS in a way that it never did. Because even though we're all about the community, you know, when you came to JTS, you walked into a lobby and then you had to go either right or left. You shouldn't actually end up anywhere. And now you walk past those elevators and you're in a gorgeous atrium. And from there, you can get almost anywhere to the library, to the auditorium, to the cafeteria, to the baby drush. It, 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 it exemplifies the, um, the intertwined communities that form JTS. And that is thrilling. And look, and the auditorium gives us an opportunity to amplify the cultural arts, performance arts that we, you know, we haven't been able to do certainly in the past half dozen years, but it's been a long time since they were as robust as I remember when I was at JTS as a high school student in the prose door and I was in a dance group in the afternoon and Hazamir met at JTS and there was much more of um, a sense of the richness of that. And I'm, I'm grateful to my predecessors for, um, you know, initiating this project. And um, it was really a privilege to work with architects who really helped us uh, create a gorgeous space that is, uh, that uh, messages who we are. I hadn't thought of this until this moment, but just this past week, I taught the Torah to my community in, in anticipation of Parshat Balak, the Shabbat, which happens to be my bat mitzvah parsha, Chukat Balak. But I taught Matovu Halecha Yaakov Mishkinotecha Yisrael, and I told them the story that not only is it the first sentence that we say when we walk into a synagogue in the morning, but I also told them that I remembered learning the Torah in my second year of cantorial school, the first having been at the conservative yeshiva in Yerushalayim, that I learned that this was one of the lines of Torah that would be most appropriate to say if I had to pass through a synagogue space, because you shouldn't have to walk through a sanctuary space. You really shouldn't ever use it as a shortcut, but if you do, you shouldn't use it and not learn a little bit of Torah. And the sentence just came out of my mouth when I was teaching this. It happened to be at a Shiva Minyan. I said, I, I didn't design JTS, but it happened to be designed in such a way that you would find yourself frequently. I would find myself frequently passing through Willis. And it was unintentionally the case that I would so often say, not thinking about it very deeply, Matovu Ohalecha Yaakov, Mishkinotecha Yisrael, as I passed from one tower from Kripke into the next and through Willis. And now I'm picturing myself walking onto this brand new reconstructed campus and saying it with completely different kavana and seeing this beautiful unfolding place and saying, Matovu, Yaakov, look how beautiful this new tent is. I'm so excited to see it and think about it with new kavana. It is just beautiful. Um, I, I am so grateful to you for your, for your vision and for the seriousness with which you take your students first and foremost 
and your faculty and with which you care for the institution that that grew me and cradled me as a Klee-Kodesh. I can't wait to visit you. And to show you around. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. Um, and what I wish for you, what I pray for you and bless you with is a leadership that we are blessed by you with that goes so far and long beyond COVID that it's just a distant watermark from the beginning of your time. Um, I, I really hope that's the case for you. Amen. Let's hope that is the case for all of us. Thank you so very, very much for your minutes today. I really appreciate it. It was a very, very wonderful experience for me as well to have the opportunity to chat about things that are, you know, close to our hearts uh, after this dark and challenging year. So thank you. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.